Hello everyone, this is Ari in the Air. Welcome back to the podcast. Thanks so much for being here. Today I have a very important interview with my friend Shane Ward. He is back on the show. Shane is a permaculturalist and a regenerative land use expert. And today I have Shane help us understand the agricultural crisis. We hear so much about the global warming and the ecological crisis and the financial crisis, all these different things that are going on right now. And one of the things that I find to be under understood, misunderstood, is the agricultural crisis, which certainly plays into the ecological crisis at large. So this is a really insightful interview and also we kind of get into some other things we kind of get into conspiracy theory at the end just what it is and um, which is interesting to hear shane's perspective and i think we share thoughts on that so yeah i really appreciate shane coming on the show it's great to have him back he is such an amazing speaker and so knowledgeable about all this stuff I think this is really important stuff. If you think this is important too, if you think these are the kind of conversations we need to be having, consider supporting this show. That's paypal.me slash airy in the air. I really appreciate all the support that has been coming my way. It's keeping this show going. Also, the other way you can support this show is share this podcast. Don't just share it with everybody. Okay, this is your little secret. This is the secret show that you're a part of. That not ev- This show is not for everyone, but you know who it's for. You know who your friends are, who are those deep thinkers who are trying to create this new world. These are the voyagers who are willing to set sail into creating something new and better, who don't want to go back to the way things were. I don't want to go back to the way things were, the way things were it wasn't right. We're killing everything. It's just not working. So we got to be voyagers. We got to be bold enough to go forward and create something new. So share this with your fellow voyagers, my friends. Thanks so much for being here. Without further ado, here is my talk with Mr. Shane Ward. What's been going on since we last spoke? Since we last spoke, I um, 
I started making moves on this gardening project. I borrowed a trailer, gone to the place to get dirt like five times and know all the guys first names that run the tractors unfortunately i don't i can't tell if i like it or not but <laughs> i um i like i put up this ad on craigslist volunteering my time and efforts for people who were probably hard on money and needed a garden and I got a couple of responses from those people but i got more responses from people who liked the message and wanted to pay me to build their gardens and so I kind of accidentally started a landscape company <laughs> constructing these garden boxes. And I actually have this really cool, there's this woman down the street from my house and she has turned her entire front yard into what she calls a nano farm. And she does vertical gardening. So she uses these cattle panels. She puts two four foot by eight foot beds. So it's two and a half meters by a meter yeah. and a quarter. Two of them next to each other. And then between the two beds, she puts this flexible fencing that's made out of metal wire and it creates this big hoop up and over. And so oh, yeah. a hoop, you know, a little hoop house is everyone knows what a hoop house is, but this is basically two beds next to each other. And the hoop is big enough to go up and over that you can walk through. So it creates a really tall trestle mm. or no trellis trellis. Yeah. And then it also works as a structure for the plastics because we live here in the desert of Oregon. It's like frost can happen in July here. So it's like, yeah, I got to have some protection. So once I saw that, then I kind of convinced my best friend to turn her front yard into a community garden that will be open to the public. <laughs> and so we've put four 14 foot beds in the front yard with these garden, these greenhouse structures over them. And now I've created that for a couple other people in town. So I've been shoveling a lot, Shane. I have been wow. so much. You have been busy. I have been busy and I have been thinking about you a lot. And people, when they ask me what I'm doing, I literally, like I've, I've had a couple of people just like, they walked by the garden the other day and they're like, oh, where'd you get your dirt? Or are you the dirt guy? And I just said, yeah, I'm the dirt guy, which... Again, I'm not sure if that's a mistake or not. And so he he basically okay. called me wanting to know how much for dirt. And I had to, if I was going to tell someone my pricing, I had to tell them that I was actually a professional action sports athlete who was doing this on donation basis as a means to take action on what I thought was important. And that being our food system fragility, which is exactly brings us full circle to what we're talking about here today. Absolutely. Now there's the first thing we need to clarify, however, <laughs> is that you need to stop using the D word. Oh yeah. It is soil. Oh, it's soil. Oh God. <laughs> dirt, dirt is what you have when you kill it. <laughs> oh really? <laughs> yeah. Soil, soil is a living thing. It's an ecosystem. Mm. And that's obviously what we use to grow plants. Dirt is the stuff that's uh, lifeless. Dusty basically. rocks. Exactly. Dusty <laughs> rocks. Broken down rock. That's yeah. dirt. But, um, yes, the food system. Well, it sounds like you're starting yeah. your own one up there. That's fantastic. I'm trying. It's a lot of work. It's a lot of work, and it's going to be even more yeah. work when we have all these boxes overgrown with tomatoes, but that'll be a beautiful thing. But what I want to hear from you today is let's start with I would love for you to just help me understand the current model and what is broken about it 
I think that a lot of people are starting to see, oh, our medical system can't take a surge of people and our governance and our finance and all of these things of the meta crisis people are starting to see. But I don't think that anyone is has been talking outwardly about the agricultural crisis, right? The ecological yeah. crisis, yeah, but the agricultural crisis, no. So paint me a picture of the agricultural crisis. Okay. Well, I mean, the thing with large interconnected systems is, you know, they are relatively complex. Not so complex that we can't get our heads around them, but just it's just it's not a linear thing. Okay. So I would say the f first and foremost, the problem that we have with our agricultural system, if I was talking at a really high level here, before we get down to the detail of the, all the problems, to try and get right back to, you know, what is the single biggest driver of all this? I've been doing a lot of thinking about this over the, the last couple of years. And I think that it comes down to a mindset. And that mindset is that we essentially are using the wrong metaphor. So what I mean by that is we take what is in reality a living natural system full of connections between things and that can be plants animals water you know the, the cycles of rainfall and sunlight and all this kind of stuff that is hugely diverse and hugely complex and has evolved over you know hundreds of millions of years we take all of that and what we do is we apply a machine metaphor to it and we simplify it to the point where it becomes in our minds much simpler to grapple with and then we treat it like a machine we take the ideas that work really well for factories so production line linear something comes in one end another thing comes out the other end and there's processes in between we do things to it and we come out with a product we take that thinking and we apply it to the landscape like that in a nutshell is the problem. Now, we can unpack that some more, but before we do, what does that mean? What does it look like? Well, think of it this way. When somebody comes along to, or someone did come along to what was essentially a pristine environment, you know, settlers and so forth, hundreds of years ago, they might find a forest or they might find a prairie or they might find something else. What the first thing they do is they cut it down. So they take the complexity and all these complex interrelationships between living things and they essentially try and start with a blank slate, right? So immediately you've removed a lot of things and it's not just the matter that you've taken away, the trees and the plants and the animals, it's all the relationships. And that's what we learn in permaculture is it's actually not the elements themselves. It's the connections between the elements that make it function, that make it important. So, so they immediately, they remove all of that stuff. They start with what's essentially a blank state, slate in their mind. And then they try to imprint a pattern and then that some sort of cultivation pattern usually. And that might be tillage and uh, row cropping. It might be grazing. Uh, it could be a combination of these things. Certainly these days, what tends to happen is someone says, okay, I'm a beef farmer. I'm a cattle farmer. So I'm going to find some land. 
I'm going to make sure that it is in inverted commas uh, agricultural condition, which means removing anything that doesn't immediately relate in my mind to beef farming. So everything's grass, right? Everything has to be grass. If it's not grass, it's not helping me. It has to be pasture for my cattle. Uh, they do all the things they need, like put in fencing and so on and so forth. And they essentially treat it like a machine. They get as much stock as in as they can, that they can feasibly manage. Um, they try to minimize their costs for feed and things like that. They try to maximize their production. And that's all that matters to them. That's the, that's essentially the industrial model for how you do it. Now, um, that's in fact a grass-based system. I mean, you start looking at these CAFOs, these uh, concentrated feedlots, and you've got even worse conditions, you know, where I'm sure many people have seen the documentaries and things like that. You only need to YouTube it and you'll see some things you can never run and see. But, you know, that, and that's even worse where essentially you say, okay, you know what, it's actually too hard to just try and move cattle all the time. Let's just put them all in pens. And they never really get to move around very much unless just bring the feed to them rather than them going to the feed. And that's even more, in inverted commas, efficient. And all this stuff looks great on paper. But of course, we come back to the single flaw, the single underlying flaw in all of this is that nature does not work like a factory. It just doesn't. That's just not the facts. Um, so the second problem is that by treating it like it does, by simplifying it down to the point where it becomes easy for simple minds to understand it, regardless of the reality, the problem is, is that you end up creating all kinds of problems, right? Impacts, what some in the agricultural industry would term externalities. In other words, things which happen somewhere else, which we don't pay for, such as polluting waterways, you know, um, eroding topsoil, uh, you know, all kinds of things which essentially are all loss of biodiversity, you know, major loss of biodiversity. Uh, et cetera, et cetera, greenhouse gases. These are all things that, that doesn't actually affect that particular farmer's bottom line because they don't pay for it. So that's that's just production. And then, of course, it goes on and we start getting towards distribution, processing, packaging, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And there's all kinds of knock-on effects through there. Now, ultimately, what's been happening over the last 70 years is that this trend, this trend to simplify as much as possible, to mechanize as much as possible, has resulted in what used to be you know, a hundred years ago, a collection of smaller farms, mostly family owned, um, people who had connections to the landscape uh, over generations, which allowed them to observe and understand their landscape and kind of, you know, work out what worked and what didn't. So even if some of their, their practices may not be considered optimal for environmental health, they could never do it very long before things started to get worse and they had to sort of adjust. That's no longer the case because what we do now around the world is we throw so much energy at essentially mining the landscape for, for products, um, fossil fuel energy in particular, that um, and then essentially playing whack-a-mole, right? So we, we pump a lot of fossil fuel energy into mechanizing everything, making it as fewer people as possible on the landscape. Uh, and if we start getting problems with pests, diseases, uh, nutrient uh, loss, well, we just throw more fossil fuels at it. You know, we put on more fertilizer, we we put on herbicides to control the weeds, fungicides to control the fungal pathogens. We put on um, pesticides to control the insects and we just keep going and around and around and around. And then that leads to massive problems. And essentially 
you are degrading that resource, that land. You are ruining the water. You're drawing up water faster from aquifers than you're putting it back in where that's being done. You are mining the nutrients and the health of the soil by pouring loads of chemicals onto it, synthetic chemicals. And that is not sustainable. I mean, that is literally the definition of not sustainable. You, you, you cannot do that forever because there will come a point where it's essentially knackered. It, it will no longer work. And to be honest with you, the vast majority of these large industrial operations are entirely, and this is not, I'm not making this up. This is true. If you were to say, okay, tomorrow, as of tomorrow, you can no longer put any fossil fuel inputs or biocides anymore. Those systems will fall over. Some within weeks, some within months, some lucky ones maybe within a couple of years. They are dependent upon those inputs to work. So immediately we have a problem. There's a massive risk. Even if, even if all those things weren't destroying the planet, even if that wasn't the case, which it is, but even if it wasn't, that would be a problem in itself that mm -hmm. these things are critically dependent. So should anything happen in that supply chain or yeah. whatever, these things will fall over and, and our food system with it. Middle Eastern politics connected to our tomatoes. Yeah. You know, that that's a problem. Yeah. You know, so, and really when you, when you break it all down, you know, and you ask, well, why do we have these problems? And I think it comes down to a putting profit ahead of everything else. Secondly, I think it's because the, the polluter doesn't pay. So if you were a producer the only thing you are really incentivized to worry about, like when, when it all boils down to it, the thing you are most incentivized to worry about is your bottom line. Am I making money off this or not? If you don't have to pay for any of the impacts, you're, the wider impacts you're having outside of the farm gate on the other side of the fence, then you don't. You know, you don't worry about those. So essentially what that means is that you can end up getting a, what you might call a soft subsidy and sort of an unofficial subsidy from the taxpayer. Because at the end of the day, if you're polluting the waterways by your agricultural practices, but you're making profit from your operation, then you're just going to keep going. You're not paying the bill. Somebody else is paying the bill. The taxpayer is paying the bill for cleaning that up. Or even if they're not cleaning it up from all the impacts, whether it's health impacts, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And we haven't even gotten into, you know, the whole situation around pesticides and fungicides and all that sort of stuff. But just, I mean, just talking at a really large scale, that is kind of the problem, right? The, the, the heart of it, I think, lies in production. There are also problems in distribution and processing and all those other things. But really, for me, I always try and break it down to the fundamentals. And the fundamentals are, we always, as a, you know, as a society, as, as a species, we need to eat. So we need to work out how can we do this forever? And the way we're doing it now mostly is not it. it it's, mm -hmm. it's got its own built-in end by date. It does. Yeah. Wow, that's a pretty succinct, I think, uh, overview. I would love to hear what you think the kind of the problem on the other side of the market is. What is the problem with the consumers? Why are, what are the metaphors that we have wrong in how we consume, how we think about our food and um, how we operate at the grocery store or how do we operate to feed our families? Like what is the, what's it look like on the other side of the market? Well, I think there's a lot of factors 
going in, swimming around in that pool of, you know, what are all these, you know, what are consumer behaviours and what are they driven by? And I think it, it obviously depends on the demographics that we're talking about. I think a lot of people, and, and again, this is how it's all interconnected, right? The economic system that we have um, is extremely well designed for helping those that already have capital get more of it, right? So, and, you know, and the, and the stats back this up. If you look at the statistics, you know, the rich get richer and real world incomes for most ordinary people do not go up. In some cases, they certainly don't keep up with inflation in a lot of countries, a lot of Western developed countries. In some cases, they've actually gone down in real terms. Now, why do I talk about that? Because what this means is that for a lot of people, they very genuinely have to just buy the cheapest food they can. Or they certainly do not have the buying power to maybe ever stop and think, what, is, what are the best choices I can make here? That's the first thing. The second thing is that they don't always get given the right information. They're not necessarily told that there is anything wrong. Like what is the difference? So, so if, if something costs $5 in the supermarket and this thing costs $2.50, why would I pay more? It looks like it's the same thing, right? Now, in some cases it is. But when we're talking about real food, fresh food, and we're talking about things that maybe have been produced organically or regeneratively or et cetera, et cetera. In some cases, they may cost more. And they don't necessarily understand why that is and why they should pay for it, even if they could afford it, which sometimes they can't. Then I think you move into a second group of people who probably the price isn't as important, but they just don't really care or they don't really understand. They don't really see the value of it. They think it's just, you know, marketing or whatever. They're a bit cynical or um, simply just not informed about it. Now, um, the thing that we get to then is that, unfortunately, just not enough people give a shit where their food comes from and they should. And I, and I think, however, that there's been a really interesting trend that I've picked up over the last few weeks whereby in a lot of countries, things that have started to sell out have not just been uh, rice and dried pasta and things like that. It's actually been things like seeds, compost. You know, that's been really fascinating. More and more people are clearly starting to switch on to the fact that their food system is not as secure as they thought it was. And, you know, I think that that reminds us that a good food system isn't safe if it only works in the good times. And then now that we have entered into some less good times, a lot of people have woken up and they've realized, hang on, the ability for me to produce even just a little bit of my own food, to be a little bit self-sufficient, is hugely powerful and important. And they've started to make this connection between life, uh, resilience, food, and therefore the food system. I think um, there is a big part for consumers to play in all of this. Sorry, I should stop calling them consumers. I don't really like that term. I sort of fall into it because everybody uses it. But I think that people need to care about where their food comes from. And I think part of that is because it's 
key to our health. You know, the old saying of we are what we eat. I mean, it is literally true. Um, it took me years to kind of click on that one that actually, that is literally true. <laughs> you breathe, <laughs> you know? drink and eat. Yeah. It, it, it goes into your body and it becomes part of you. And, you know, therefore eating healthy food. Um, and the, the other saying that I heard that, that clicked with me as well was food is medicine. You know, I used to think, oh, that's a very sweet thing to say, but you know, but it is actually true. Like, because, you know, when you get injured or hurt or whatever, it's your, it's your body's mechanisms that heal you. Someone doesn't heal you. They provide help to your body so it can heal itself. Mm-hmm. And most of the time, the best thing for that is actually good nourishment it's nutrients it's things to feed the microbes that live on you and in you that that help facilitate all these healing processes your body does naturally so the connection between human health and and the earth from where you know food comes from is super critical um so i think that there's there's a bit of there's more knowledge that people need to um get around that and i think that it also does matter i mean i don't expect everybody to be experts in agriculture obviously but I think that, you know, there are some basic things and I think a lot of people kind of get this. Like if they were shown how a lot of the industrial products are produced and you know, they see some of the animal welfare conditions in these operations or they see where their food actually comes from, what's in it, and then they saw something natural, I think most people would choose the natural thing because they would kind of, of recognize it, you know. It's the all over is, the marketing at the grocery yeah. stores. All the dairy products are cows in green grass with lots exactly, of space. Yeah. That is not where their product comes from, though. No. And, 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 and you know, they obviously, they work very hard to do that, they, they, to try and create an image because the reality isn't that palatable. So I think, you know, that is <laughs> That's a huge the understatement of the century. The reality of factory farming and feedlots is less than palatable. Yes, you're right. But it only works because people don't know. You know, it's, it's a kind of a, it's an ignorance that, that keeps people buying this stuff, you know. And again, I don't blame them for it, but it, that's what it boils down to. They have to. some agency in it. I mean, yeah, and I think if, if maybe so. Okay, so look, I've done um, a little bit of um, work, you know, talking with people about getting gardens in schools, and you know, I've been yeah helping plant things in kindergartens and things for my own kids. And I think it's so important. There was a really good example in New Zealand, a kindergarten that my um, my boys went to for a little while, and they they had a fantastic um, garden. They had some raised beds, but they were planting fruit trees, and you know, this wasn't in a particularly um, high socioeconomic area and there were kids there whose parents were really struggling and, you know, their spending priorities at the supermarket were not necessarily on fresh greens and they didn't have a strong food culture perhaps uh, at home. But it's uh, so, so when their parents tried to get them to eat their greens, of course, they'd be like, no, nah, no. Nah. And these are kids that are about, you know, three, three, four. And, um, but then they would, at kindergarten, they would run out and grab a, a bit of kale that they've grown themselves and just munch on it, yeah. you know. No dressing, then, not a bunch of no, sugar and a bunch of oil on it. No, but they connected with it, you know, they understood yeah. it and they and they would go home and tell their parents about it and tell their parents, you know, and then this is what we can do with it. And that, that would help to sort of start something, you know, start a bit more of a little spark of a food culture within the, each family from this learning experience, from this connection that they had from growing it themselves. You know, it can be really simple, but very powerful. Um, And really most of all, I mean, like we said in our last conversation, just understanding where food comes from 
it doesn't come from a supermarket or a shop. It comes from the ground. And and the fact that we, we knew this for 99.999% of our history as a species until quite recently, and in fact, supermarkets are only quite recent, actually. I remember hearing somebody talk, and she was only, she's only, must be only in her 60s, late 60s now. Um, and she was saying when she was young, there were, there were no supermarkets, you know, where she was. There was, the concept didn't, wasn't, it just wasn't around, right? That's not where people got their food. And I think really it's, it's a, it's a post second world war phenomenon, right? So this, our culture has been quite radically changed by that. And I think that in, like in a lot of things, maybe we need to ask ourselves, have we overstepped somewhere? You know, we just put a foot wrong and then maybe we should just stop a second and go, hang on, maybe, maybe there are some things we were doing before, which actually we should go back to because they were working and this new step we've taken in this direction is perhaps not the best one. Um, and when it comes to the food system, I definitely think that, you know, supermarkets can possibly be a force for good, but largely they're not right now because a lot of the pressures that farmers, uh, orchardists, et cetera, producers, a lot of the pressures that they have are driven by supermarkets who have huge amounts of buying power and they have conditioned the customers to only pick the perfect looking apple or carrot or whatever, right? There's no dirt on anything. Everything is blemish free. It's not, it's not real. Okay. So to produce this kind of fake Hollywood looking food, you know, this kind of like it's been, you know, it's had a lot of cosmetic surgery yeah. um, to, to produce that stuff is you, you have to sacrifice other things. It's the easiest way to put it. Um, that might be flavor. That might yeah. be nutrition. Mm-hmm. It almost always is flavor and nutrition. Um, when, when you hear someone, your grandfather or grandmother say, oh, you know, it, these that strawberries don't taste like they used to when I was a child. Perhaps part of it is nostalgia, but I'm pretty sure that 90% of it is accurate. And yeah. I did see a study actually that was really um, fascinating where they took some uh, different food groups and they compared the nutritional values to 1940 and found that between 10 and 100% of the nutrition was gone. Oh my God, that's way too big of a number. <laughs> 10 yeah. to 100. Hold on one second. Yeah. So it's like know. pornographic food. It's like so big and so red and so round that we're like, whoa, we like those shapes. We like those colors. That's like a blushing cheek. We like that. That's a sign of ovulation. That's yeah. when you know how to win the pounds. <laughs> When it's, the pounds you know, on the red tomato. Yeah. And then we, but when you, you start breaking it down and looking at the supply chain and how a lot of these things are transported and, you know, they're picked unripe and then they're artificially ripened with hormones and, you know, all this kind of stuff. It's, um, it's really not what you would expect. And, and the, to me, I, like, you know, you can get, go down that path as well and talk about all that stuff, but really what it brings me back to is the pressure that this puts on producers. So how much do they need to throw away for a start if it's not perfect? And I think anyone who produces um, goods and sells them to supermarkets will understand that. The second problem is it's about varieties and, you know, the genetic diversity that we're losing in our food crops is frightening. There is an amazing short documentary that I believe was um, 
co-produced by GoPro. I'm not sure I need to check that, but uh, about the seed bank in uh, in Norway. Um, and the amazing That's like work. a big vault that's like dug into yeah. the ground, concrete, nuclear proof. Meant to be, to protect against global warming. Um, because they, so they put it in Svalbard up in Norway in the, in the Arctic Circle because they thought this will always stay frozen and will protect the world's seed diversity, right? The plant diversity. Because because what's happened is that, um, you know, we used to have hundreds of, hundreds of different varieties of anything, anything you could pick, you know. I mean, let's just take, I don't know, apples. Right, you know, maybe maybe we used to grow even just across the United States. They probably used to grow, I don't know, hundreds, three hundred more, maybe varieties mm-hmm. of apples in different regions. You know, that became adapted to their to their area. And um, but then, as the supermarket and the mass marketing and mass production of agriculture escalated, the um, pressure was to pull all those out and just plant one or two varieties or three. You know. And these become known as the commercial varieties, and they've been selected to be X, Y, and Z. They look great, they, you know, the, but their taste not as good. Their nutritional quality probably not as good. Um, their pest resistance well, you don't need to worry about that because you can just spray it, right? Etc. 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 So what we do is we then just let all these other ones disappear, and you just grow these two or three. But then what happens when you get a new pest, which invariably you do, or a new disease? Because this is the whole, we have to remember, we're locked in an evolutionary arms race with pests and diseases when it comes to our food crops, just like we are. And when you spray, for example, a pest, say you use a spray, say you use a, um, a pesticide. Say you use a pesticide on a tree. You see, some, you suddenly see these insects come out. Oh no, I've got all these pests. Okay, so you reach for the, the spray, you spray it, you kill the pest. But you'll never kill 100%. You may kill 99%. But that 1% that you sprayed but didn't die, that's because they have some gene, some mutation that's given them resistance to it. Okay. That you've just now accidentally you've, selected for. Exactly. So you've just killed everything else, all the competition. And now the one that's resistant is the one that survives. And that's the one that reproduces and passes on its genes of resistance. Yeah. We and saw that. We saw that problem here in the West when people would kill rattlesnakes that rattled at them. And we are left with only the rattlesnakes that didn't rattle. They would just bite you. No warning. Exactly. So it doesn't take a genius to work out that you're never going to win that battle. All, you, all you're doing is you're just breeding better pests. So, you know, that is a ridiculous way to proceed. But then that's what we do, okay. And um, so that's also what happens with our selecting for different varieties. We select the varieties which suit supermarket because that's, that's most of the buyers are supermarkets, right? So the vast majority is selected for the things which make supermarkets want to buy them, not what makes the best apple, not what makes the most blight-resistant, pest-resistant, you know, apple, the most flavorsome or the most nutritional. That's not what's selected for. What's selected for is what's going to sell. And so that's where we have. So now, and this is true of of all the world's um, staple food crops and fruit varieties, we've reduced them down to a tiny, tiny amount. Even, you know, what you would call the Western diet. I mean, it's, I think someone pointed out, maybe it was Michael Pollan or something, that, you know, it's, it's reduced down to something like, eight ingredients or something, you know, um, corn fructose being one of the major ones. Yeah. And it used to be, you know, when you look at some of these traditional societies around the world, you know, that it's estimated that the original human diet probably consisted of something like, what was it, like 50 
different ingredients a week. Yeah. 50 different foodstuffs. And now we're down to about seven, right? And, you know, so the whole thing is connected, right? Mm -hmm. The whole thing about how we grow our food, about what we eat, about how we shop, it's all part of this one big system. So to clear it all up, I think that people that when they buy their food, they they should first of all care about where their food comes from. They should make the best choices that they can from where they buy their food and what they buy. You know, within within the limits of what they can afford, they should be buying the best food for themselves and their family that they can. They should, where possible, seek out and support the people that are doing the right thing, which is not destroying the landscape and making their land better over time, not worse, and producing good quality, healthy, nutritious food. Like that is actually some people always ask me, oh, well, what can you know ordinary people do? Well, that's the, the most important thing I think they can do. But first of all, give a shit. And then, you know, engage, like engage with the, with the issue, find out, you know, who's around me that's doing this stuff and just start support them because these are a lot of people out there who really care about this stuff and want to do the right thing. But it is tough. It's tough going up against big ag, you know, it is. it's a multi-billion dollar industry and they, no one wants to let go of that. They're not going to let go of it easily. So you know, it's tough, you know, you can do it and people are doing it. And, you know, I say that these people are heroes, you know, the farmers that are out there farming regeneratively that are really swimming against the current to try and do the right thing. They need to be supported. And I think the more people that support them, um, the better off we'll all be. And yeah, I mean, I think that's, that's just, I, the, think, so. I think you're right. And I, I think you're right. And I think there's, a, it's, I want to say that there's a few examples here in Central Oregon of people that I know that are farming, but as I say that, I don't actually know at a depth of their practice what exactly it is that they're doing, but definitely much more polycultured, but still farming in rows and we're not, there's no food forest CSA around here, that's for sure. Yeah, because look, I mean, I always say this, right, when I'm giving a talk to people or whatever. Um, you are not a farmer. You're not a pig farmer. You're not a beef farmer. You're not an orchardist. You're an ecosystem manager, whether you realize it or not. Right? And I think that your success at that is largely dependent upon to what extent you realize that fact because it, the natural world out there is an ecosystem. You may have like beaten it into submission until it's barely recognizable anymore, but it's still one. It's still an ecosystem. It's still trying to thrive. It's trying to grow. It's trying to come back. So, you know, you need to engage with that. And I try and I guess my work's involved in helping people along that journey, you know, to the extent that they can. And, and not everyone can sort of start day one with a full polycultural, vertically stacked, integrated, multi-enterprise, you know, system. And that's fine. But, you know, there's a lot of stuff that people can do just in terms of their management from sort of day one, even in a sort of more industrial model to begin with. They can change the way that they manage soil. They can stop. They can massively reduce their inputs. They can stop spraying. They can do all these other things. Like if they're grazing, they can um, change their grazing management to, you know, in ways that will massively improve their soil, which will improve their bottom line, which will improve their environmental performance. It'll improve their water holding capacity. They won't need to irrigate. You know, they'll be improving the productivity of their crops and so on and so forth. And even if their total yield might dip a bit in the first few years, um, 
it won't matter because their profitability will go up. So, you know, th- this is just without even completely changing the paradigm, just changing some of the management practices, you can actually start moving in the right direction mm. um, and sequestering carbon and doing all these other things. Um, but, you know, the, the other thing, I remember um, giving a talk once in, um, to some horticulture um, classes and, you know, I, I was pointing out that when we go back to that first example I gave of people come across a pristine ecosystem and they go to apply their, their pattern onto the landscape, you have to remember that when you get a, take a functioning ecosystem, every element that you remove from it becomes a job that you as a farm manager, as a land manager, have to do yourself. Right? So if you look on one end of the extreme, you've got a functioning ecosystem where all the nutrients are cycling, all the pests are controlled because every pest has got a predator which eats it. So if, if the numbers get too big, it just means, oh, great, more food for the predators and they eat them until the population goes down and there's not enough food and the predators drop off a bit and it all keeps itself in balance, right? And when you start pulling things out of that, it's a bit like uh, Kaplunk. You know, the game with the, the sticks and the marbles balanced on top and you basically keep pulling those little sticks out and you, just the tension builds as you go to work out which is going to be the stick which makes the whole thing fall down. Well, ecosystems are a bit like that. You know, how many elements can we pull out of this ecosystem until the whole thing collapses? And I think we're starting to realise now with agriculture roughly where that line is. Um, but, yeah, you know, so so you start pulling things out of that ecosystem and you have to start doing that job yourself. So, okay, oh, no, the, the, the fertility cycle is no longer working anymore. Well, I've got to do that myself. So, so along comes Farmer Joe with his bag of fertilizer and says, oh, okay, well, this isn't working, so I've got to put fertilizer on. So, okay, so that's suddenly an input that you're now, you know, someone's dug up some coal or some oil and they've, you know, made fertilizer for you. All right. So then, oh, hang, hang on, we've got all these pests and diseases. All right, well, I've got to now spray. So you've got to go and buy the thing. So essentially, you're going off and paying money for something that nature would normally do anyway by itself for free because you've removed all the things that do it, right? And the cycle just kind of accelerates. And the, the simpler the system is, in other words, the more degraded, the, the bearer it is, the more of those things you have to do yourself as a manager. So... Really, if you want to ask, well, what is regenerative agriculture? What is permaculture? What's it all about? Well, the answer is it's about putting as many of those things back in as you can to do that work for you while still producing stuff, right? And that's why it's a little bit of a jigsaw puzzle and it's a little more complex than just saying, here, someone gives you a sheet of paper and just says, apply this on these dates. Um, you know, people go out and they laser level their land like just so that it is dead level and then just essentially pour a whole bunch of inputs onto it. It's the opposite of that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a very delicate system. I'm I'm curious, what do you think is the likelihood that we see things fall down? I guess what does it look like for them to fall down? Are are you noticing some of these systems starting to break down? You know, Jordan Hall, someone I trust a lot wrote the other day that about how the oil prices dipped into the negative, which squashed American oil production like a lot. And that as farmers are having to pour out their milk and euthanize their animals and bury them in the ground, that there was a likelihood that American food production could take a similar hit. 
So I'm curious, what kind of things are you tracking right now? Is that something you're looking at? I know that's not exactly, you're not a catastrophic food systems forecaster, but what's your, what's your best, what's your best, maybe you are. Well, maybe I am, depends on what mood you catch me in. Um, what, yeah, look, predictions are very slippery things mm-hmm. because essentially, you know, you start building assumptions on assumptions. So, you know, obviously you got to take all this with a grain of salt. Um, I, the honest answer, of course, is that I don't know and it depends. But I tell you what I do know is that there are a series of crises which are building up and we're currently not doing anywhere near enough to address them. So those crises include climate, biodiversity, food, soil, resource use, and and all the knock-on effects of these things as well. So geopolitical instability, rising sea levels, uh, you know, lack of fresh water. Um, all of these things together put increasing amounts of pressure onto all of our systems, right? And, and that's the food system, that's the global economy, that's that's everything, that's political stability. Um, it's really difficult to know which one's going to buckle first, right? And maybe it isn't just one at a time. Maybe it's going to be several at once. I suspect that probably the most likely scenario is that we see a mixture of different things. Okay, so the food... Food and climate are are intimately connected, obviously. Not just because the world is getting warmer, which it is, but with the added warming, we get increased volatility. And this is the thing which keeps me up at night. If the world was only going to go up, say, one, one and a half, two degrees even, but it was a nice even two degrees and everything was just a little more pleasant, that'd be fantastic, right? But unfortunately, what's actually happening is that when you warm the whole thing up, all the cycles that drive weather patterns make it much more volatile. So what you end up getting is um, these, you know, freak events, whether it's freak heat waves, droughts, cold snaps, rain, you know, hurricanes, you know, cyclones, all this sort of stuff become more extreme and more damaging. And they might start what used to be perhaps a, a one in a hundred year flood becomes a one in a 20 year flood. And then you may get two in a year, right? So, that to me is hugely worrying because all of the food crops that we have developed over hundreds of years to keep us going have never evolved to deal with that rapid a change. Okay. So, and this is before you even start looking at the fact that we've bred a lot of resilience out of our food crops to begin with for the commercial ones. But even if we go back to wild, more wild varieties of some of our food crops to try and bring back some more of these genetics, which are a bit more hardy and so forth. Even if you do that, no plant on this planet has ever had 
in an evolutionary sense, had to adjust to that kind of rapid fluctuation in conditions. So all it's going to take is just one roll of the dice one year, which is bad enough that we have what they call multiple breadbasket failures, where you get major staple crops, um, which are often grown in a particular area, um, predominantly, you know, wheat, rice, you know, whatever it is. All it takes is a really bad year for a couple of places at once, and then you're going to have a big problem. And part of that big problem is people won't be able to get the food. That's the first part. The second part is the effect on markets, commodity markets, and what that does to the stability of the global financial system. Then what that can also do for the livelihoods, of course, of the people that depend on that for a living, to, so there's that, which then in turn, as we see in places like Syria and, and other parts of the world, where once you start having, if you have prolonged droughts, that puts pressure on agriculture, which puts pressure on the societies that are working the land, which can lead in some certain conditions towards more extremism, which leads to more political instability, which leads to more, you know, populist governments, which leads to more, you know, conflict, which leads to mass migration, which then puts pressure on other things. And, you know, so you get all of these sorts of effects start to unravel. Then you start adding in all the pressures of, you know, whether it's rising sea levels um, or just increased storm surge in certain, you know, let's be honest, a lot of the world's richest cities are on coastlines and, Maybe they do have the money now and the resources to build a bigger seawall or do whatever. But then you might also have a flood and you might have a drought that year. Or there may be an earthquake. There may be some other thing going on, plus all these other pressures, plus food shortages, plus a pandemic. And before you know it, there just isn't enough money, resources, capacity any longer to keep dealing with these things because we can deal with them when they're once every 80 years. It's when they all start to happen back to back or, or in the same year that essentially the pressures mount up to the point where things start to unravel. And I mean, this isn't just me. I mean, I, I read a lot of stuff. I, I find it quite interesting when you speak to senior military officials in different countries, or, you know, you, you listen to their reports about, cause they do a lot of this stuff. They do a lot of this scenario planning and they say, okay, well, what if, you know, this was to happen or, you know, this country was to fail or someone else, you know, it's, and it's not just military things. It's other societal things. You know, we suddenly have a wave of refugees, you know, at, how do our systems cope with this stuff? And um, when you start to sort of read through this, look at their thinking, look at the things that they're, they're, they're role-playing, they're wargaming, if you will, um, this stuff out, uh, it becomes really interesting. And you begin to see how all the systems are connected and how we, we live in a world that is rather brittle. Okay. And as we've seen from the pandemic, like unprecedented, never in history have has the entire world closed all its borders like this. Like it's just never happened. And that happened really quickly. So I used to have to really struggle to get people to imagine a world that's different to the one that they had taken for granted. So when I talked about all this, some people were like, yeah, yeah, it sounds a bit like science fiction. Now, in the last few weeks, I don't think it's been quite as hard to get people to realize how quickly the world can change. Um, I think that the wow, food system, <laughs> the food system is at the base of it all, right? Because like I keep coming back to, you know, we can always change our system of government. We can change the way that we run an economy. We can all this other stuff, civilization, whatever that looks like to you, can be all kinds of different things, but all of it, will always be built on our ability to feed ourselves. 
So that's why I keep coming back to agriculture and our food system. It's so critical. Oh, man, no kidding. It is crazy how, just like you said, people are seeing for the first time in their lives how quickly the world can change. And thinking about a food system that can so quickly change so drastically for the worse is terrifying. It does not take a political or historical buff to know that when people have food scarcity, they do things that they shouldn't. And people act in ways that we're not used to having people act. And that's a really scary and dark potential with uh, what's being held up by tractors and diesel. Yeah. One of my favorite uh, bands, Rage Against the Machine, had a really good lyric. Um, Hungry people don't stay hungry for long. Yeah. Hungry people don't stay hungry for long. That's, yeah, it's really scary. That's really scary. Did you say pandemic? Did I hear you say that? Or was that just pandemic? Pandemic. <laughs> I was like, uh, was <laughs> Although, no, I, honestly, like maybe I did say it. Maybe I should coin that. <laughs> have you heard that online? No, I haven't. No. That's a, a term that the people more apt for conspiracy are connecting myriad dots about how the entire pandemic was actually orchestrated. And <laughs> oh God. Look, can I just say, right, please I'm gonna nip this in the bud. When I was younger, I, nip I, used to, in the bud. <laughs> I used to love a great good conspiracy theory when I was younger. <laughs> but but as I've um gone out into the world and done more and worked in large organizations and just had more experience dealing with people and seeing a little, having a few peeks behind the curtain about how things get done in the Mm -hmm. world. I've come to realize that conspiracy theories are a psychological phenomenon and they don't really work in reality because I'm not, I'm not saying it's impossible that, you know, conspiracy, some conspiracy theories, you know, could exist, but it's always been extremely difficult to keep a secret, right? It's particularly more difficult to keep a conspiracy, which involves a plan over time with people not knowing about it and moving, pulling levers behind the scenes. Like all that stuff becomes increasingly difficult the more people that are involved with it. And it's not just because people find it difficult to keep secrets, but because people are people, right? You would be amazed at the hilarious levels of just ineptitude. People can be just incompetent, lazy. Um, I think the quote that you're alluding to is don't use malevolence to explain anything that can be explained through incompetence. Yeah, exactly. And, and when you see that and when you do glimpse at the way that things work and, you know, like the people that get, that rise to the top of industry and corporate world and stuff, um, you know, some of them are good. A lot of them are clever. But, you know, a lot of them aren't too. You know, I've, you know, I've seen a lot of people who are not what you would call Oh, I don't know. They're not evil genius. They're not even geniuses no, I, of any sort. I agree. I agree with what you're saying for the most part. I think that um, conspiracy is a psychological 
experience. I totally agree with that. And it's I, a need for control because you know what? It it's is. much safer to believe mm-hmm. that there are people, Absolutely. even bad people out there who have a plan and this is all because of them than it is to believe that the world mm-hmm. is just chaotic and random. Mm-hmm. And that's terrifying. And I understand the need for it. I, I know the world would be a much much more digestible and much in some ways it would feel safer if there was such a thing as just simple good guys, simple bad guys, mm. and all the bad stuff that happens is because of the bad guys and we can mm. fight that. That's easy. That's an enemy we can see. We yeah, can absolutely. ally ourselves against it and that's great and that's, that'd be wonderful if that was true. But unfortunately, the thing is that sometimes, you know, as we all know, when we have to grow up and stop believing there's monsters in the cupboard, is that sometimes it's actually what's, what's scary is just the unknown and that we need mm-hmm. to just be okay with that. Yeah, I totally agree. I've been speaking to that a lot, that conspiracy tends to come from a need to know, a need to be certain, a relief from ambiguity. Mm. On At the same time, though, I feel like there is an opportunity right now t- for power grabs and that people who have developed asymmetric power in the past are who have proven to be good at that, take that kind of opportunity are likely to do that again. And I think that we're seeing that and um, yeah, I don't know. I guess it's scary and it's a disempowering thought when I think about how we can move forward into uh, the next, the new world, I feel empowered. And when I think about the people who are, who created the old world, who are still alive and playing the game in this time, it is, um, it's disempowering. It's a scary thought. Oh yeah. And look, don't get me wrong. I, corruption exists everywhere. Um, and yeah, I mean, people, people make bad decisions and yes, you know, people who have power do not want to let it go. They're not going to, and this is the other thing is I feel that sometimes there's a little naivety in the activist world that we sort of, keep making the mistake of thinking that if some people just saw, just knew the truth or just saw the facts, they would make the right decision. And I think that's true of most people, but I've also come to realize that the kinds of behaviors and personalities that are selected for uh, in this world, you know, to, to be, successful in the sense of, you know, being a big titan of industry or corporate leader or whatever, you know, there's a lot of what you might classify as psychopaths, Mm -hmm. you know, because that's what you select for. That's what society, Mm -hmm. the system rewards. So, you know, this notion that we can appeal to their better nature is I think slightly flawed. I think I saw something recently. It definitely has a hole in it at least. Yeah. It definitely has a hole in it. And I think that one of the things I've noticed is that the people who are most likely to raise their own consciousness enough to see their impacts on the world also simultaneously come to see everyone else as flawed and trying their best. There is this psychological reality that four to 6% of humanity has a little bit of this, like this, this tweak in their brain, whether that's the neurological or just sociological thing that comes up in them. But there is this, like, it's a, almost a biological form of evil, a biological form of wrongdoing that I think a lot of people um, who become the activists that you're talking about tend to give benefit of the doubt where it actually needs to be taken away. Yeah. And I mean, look, you know, that's not to say these people 
can't change. It's just simply that the, the, the system that we have re- has rewarded them all their lives for behaving in a particular way. Um, and, they, and, and it's been a sort of a self-fulfilling prophecy. You know, they've gotten the power, they've gotten the status, so they must be right, you know, right? And this is the flaw at the heart of the idea of meritocracy is that it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. You know, as soon as you have power or wealth, then suddenly you can justify to yourself that you deserve it because you have it. Not for any other reason, just simply, well, I must be successful. I must be the best because I'm successful, right? Mm-hmm. Um, it's the idea of survival of the fittest. It's a tautology. It's like, it, it's not, it just means the same thing. If you, in, in a sort of evolutionary sense, the fittest are the ones that survive just by definition. So it's not because they are better. It's just simply because they survived. It could have been luck. Um, but the, 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 it's interesting how the, the phrase gets thrown around. I was just looking before I saw this um, thing come around, which I thought was interesting about how 100 companies are responsible for more than 70% of the world's greenhouse gas emissions. Uh-huh. And it just made me think like, you know, there's a hundred people that run those companies and it's really just a hundred companies. And when you think about it like that, it's the concentration of influence at that level is quite um, striking, isn't it? Yeah. And about it's how, you know, sometimes it is just influencing to the, the right. Yeah. I thing. think that another thing about the, conspiracy theorists as I have begun to try to hear them as mythopoetic, like the lizard global elites, right? Is maybe it's not an actual group of people who are connected, but it's a myth. It's a, you know, it's the hundred, it's the hypothetical hundred leaders of the hundred companies that have 70% of the global greenhouse gas emissions. And I think that there are, there is, there is an oppressive potential there. You know, there is a very oppressive potential for those a hundred people to have a really profound effect on how we all live and our systems and our lives. Mm. And I mean, look, not to get off on a whole new thing, but I, I think that when we start to look at the concentration of power and where it sits, um, I'm, very uncomfortable with the digital age that we're in. Mm-hmm. And I mean, I'm not technophobic at all. I love technology, but it's gotten to the point now where I'm becoming increasingly less comfortable with where the line is drawn in regards to um, freedom and privacy. Um, and how the big tech giants um, use that and the influence that they have. And it's not even just that, you know what? It's also the fact that there is, there has been over the last, um, I don't know, 20 years or so since I suppose we've entered what some would call the digital age, this kind of messianistic, you know, dream building of this glorious techno future that we're all going to move into. And I think it's kind of dangerous, not least because it distracts us from reality, which as we've talked about is about our connection to the living planet. 
And I know when I say that, I know that it can sound as if I'm talking in a philosophical sense, but I mean it in both that sense in terms of us being biological beings reconnecting with the, our biological reality that we are connected to what's around us. But I mean it also from a very realistic sense, you know, in a really pragmatic way that we are actually dependent, even though it doesn't feel like it if maybe your your world is just all in the internet and technology and you live in a city and it, everything you're surrounded by is just concrete, glass, steel. You know, it doesn't feel that way, but it's true that your existence is propped up by someone somewhere growing food for you. And that if that stops, you've got a real problem. Mm-hmm. Um, so that reality, that reality of our connection to the, to the earth, to the soil in particular is really important. And I think that the more we reconnect with food growing, even if it is in a raised bed, uh, you know, or a pot on your balcony, that helps remind us about what's really important because all it could take is, you know, a solar flare to wipe out the entire internet and all of our technology tomorrow. And uh, I think the people who would be best off in that situation are the people that know how to feed themselves and their family. Yeah, I absolutely agree. I absolutely agree. And I felt this crazy effect, you know, being a professional athlete for a decade, I kind of end up marketing, selling myself in some kind of nebulous, ethereal abstraction that I'm um, almost a, I'm an ethereal tool that is out there. But that is a difficult game to, to only moderately win. <laughs> and it becomes like emotionally straining after some time, right? Um, where in the last couple of weeks, as I started this gardening project, I've just felt very grounded and very connected to the people and the place. And I realized that I didn't really know what the names were of the people that lived across the street from me. And that I just, my mind kind of extrapolated like, okay, shit has at some level hit the fan. And if it were to hit the fan a lot harder and even break some blades of the fan, then I might be stuck here on this block with these people right around me. What would we do then? You know, like, like who are we? What is our connection here? If we can't go to Fred Meyer and buy a pornographically gigantic tomato and yeah, I definitely feel that. I definitely feel myself. I, I almost feel like it's a self-preservation instinct that's like coming on in me. That's like, hey, you're smart enough to see all this stuff. Hopefully you're smart enough to grow some fucking food. <laughs> <laughs> well, you can learn that, you know, and you can learn pretty much anything. And this is the thing, I think one of the reasons why I and I guess loads of other people, if you notice the trend, have been watching more and more sort of post-apocalyptic uh, you know, TV shows and movies and stuff over the, the the last few years is, I think, well, certainly I'll speak for myself. Sometimes I enjoy seeing these situations and thinking, you know, yeah, what what can I actually do? You know, if you take away all the support networks, all the, the internet's gone, or, you know, you, you, it's just you and your skills and the world, like, what can you, what do you actually know how to do? It's you even know? just a fun mental game to play. Yeah, it is. Yeah. Who's on and your zombie apocalypse team? <laughs> yeah, exactly. You know, and it, it's great because I think it's a really 
useful thought exercise. And, um, uh, you know, and again, I don't think this, this necessarily justifies being a mad prepper, but I think that it's on a spectrum, right? And I think that, that, that knowing how to, yeah, grow food, find water, you know, learn about the world around you, your environment, you know, knowing how to pitch a shelter in, in the woods or something, you know, that's all just useful stuff to, to know. And, and, if, and my, you know, almost everyone used to know this stuff. Like it wasn't that long that's ago. That's just a childhood well spent, all those skills. Yeah, exactly. So um, I think it's really useful that, you know, that we do that. And, and I, I really like how you talk about not just the personal connection that you can get from, from growing your food, but also the communal one. And I think it's so important. And I know it's funny because whenever people say to me, oh, you know, should we, or, you know, what can we do? And I say, well, you know, grow, grow more food. It sounds so small, uh-huh. but it's only after you do it that you realize how profound the effect can be. Yeah. It's hidden. It, yeah. It's hidden. It brings that, people together. It's therapeutic. The, um, it's, it's used for treating PTSD in some cases, you know, it, it, it's really does make such a profound difference, you know, it changes is. the way you think. Yeah, on that documentary that I actually found you, there's a line that he says that permaculture is a revolution disguised as gardening. Because yeah. it really is. It's like just just to move around and create things in your yard and like when you have a neighbor is kind of like a some kind of communication to them that you're like this is my value, this is what I'm doing and and then to, it, it also just takes a lot of work, you know, it's not, it's not that hard of work, but it takes a lot of time and it takes care and attention. And exactly. These are all things that we like are just desperately lacking right now, care and attention and daily presence with something that's alive. And observation, you know, reaction yes. to it. And I think, that, and this is the key to regenerative agriculture, really, the, the main difference is that you don't just apply this pattern this preformed idea onto the landscape getting right back to the very first thing we talked about it's not about applying a preformed idea it's not imposing simplicity it's managing complexity it's mm-hmm. opening yourself up to it to say what is the reality that's around me what is the world that i'm faced with open your eyes to it look at it embrace it for what it is not for what you want it to be not for what you think it should be but just look at it. What's it doing? Is it raining? Is it sunny? Is it cold? Is it warm? What's happening? What's growing? Where's it growing? Why is it growing there? You know, understand that all of these things are connected and that the conditions that you are dealing with, you can influence those conditions. You are not controlling everything, but you can help change the conditions and those conditions will favor and disfavor certain things. And when you start to connect with that, you begin to realize that you are actually living, right? It's that thing of, you know, you're not a, uh, you know, you're not a human doing, you're a human being. Mm-hmm. And because, because to see that stuff, you have to kind of remove the lenses from in front of your eyes a bit, you know, and again, you have to take care, you have to take attention, you have to pay attention, you have to be present to some degree, you have to, yeah, put in that effort and that attention. And I think you're right, I think in some ways, this sort of digital world that we spend a lot of our time in, um, de-incentivizes that, you know, it encourages completely different things. It, it, you know, it's always trying to play to that sort of, that, um, that gambling uh, gamified um, neural pathway, you know, where yeah. we're getting really quick rewards for doing things, short attention span, move around, flick, 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 you know. So it can be really transformative to just sort of be. Mm-hmm. And I think a lot of people are thinking about that in this 
pandemic situation right now. So many more people are just suddenly waking up and realizing, hang on a second, why yeah, the am I line going the, to work? Yeah, the line at the hardware store is just insane lately. People are building things at home. Yeah. And, and, and that there is perhaps something more to life than just going to work, paying off a house and dying. And that there might actually be more to do in there, you know, and that maybe, you know, so actually, you know what, this reminds me of something I was looking at earlier that it was really, I'd, I'd read this before a few years ago, but it was nice to hear it played back. Um, we were talking about um, the idea that increasing income always leads to a better quality of life. And the fact that that's actually not based on any facts whatsoever. And, and, and nor is the idea that um, underpinning what underpins our Western economies is that increased consumption is the primary route to well-being, right? Um, because the, actually the studies show quite the opposite. And the, what was the number? At a certain point, at around fifteen, twenty thousand dollars US, the life satisfaction scores of people just stayed the same. They basically did not go up at all even to quite large increases of GDP. So this idea that if we make our countries richer, we will be happier, we'll have higher well-being is just not true. And that when they started looking at things like, um, there's a case study that's right in the city of Sheffield in the UK over a 30-year period where they, real incomes doubled, but even the weakest communities at the start were stronger than any of the communities at the end. So, you know, this idea that, that income and well-being and happiness are connected is, is actually just not true. Basically, as soon as um, all life's essentials are met, it, it becomes essentially meaningless. It becomes, I, I actually, what I've heard is that like something over like 70,000 US a year, your happiness actually starts going down again. Yeah. You're like, yeah, that's it. you get your needs met and that makes your life better, but then you have too much money and you don't know what to do with it. It just creates a bunch of problems. Well, it's true. You know, you've got more stuff to worry about, don't you? And yeah, we're not, we're, I mean, and it makes sense from just my own, uh, how I would imagine evolution for us to have brains that look to meet our needs. And that for so long took up all of the time for our entire lives to meet our needs and to raise our children. Right. And now we have our needs met so easily, so quickly, and we have abundance outside of that and we psychologically that's got to be some kind of new thing for us yeah i don't yeah. know if that's true i'm just forecasting now but shane dude this was this is a good one well i'll call you again in four weeks wow love it fun yeah i love bullshitting with you man thanks so much for your time <laughs> always a pleasure okay we'll see you next time thanks man see you later Okay, you guys, I hope you enjoyed that. I hope that was insightful for you. Shane is just so well-spoken and so knowledgeable, and I really appreciate him dropping all these bombs on the show. If you think that this is an important conversation to be having, consider donating to the show. That's paypal.me slash airy in the air. Also, share this with your fellow Voyagers, the people who are looking to change the world that's the kind of people that want to listen to this show folks so i hope that this inspires in you new conversations and i hope this inspires in you um, new thoughts and please share those things with me 
Share those things with the people around you. Keep these conversations going. This is not an end-all, be-all. This is actually just a jumping-off point for us to think about new things and to create a new world. So to my fellow Voyagers, thank you for being here. I'll see you on the next show. You guys stay healthy, stay sane, stay safe, and keep thinking. Spread the love. Peace. Peace.